Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of Smaller Narratives for a Larger World. This is a podcast project sponsored by the Departments of Comparative Literature and Anthropology at Binghamton University. My name is Jillian Kenna, and I am a co-host on the show and a graduate student studying English at Binghamton University. Today, I am joined by Ulrich Bayer, university professor at New York University, where he teaches poetry and photography and is the director of NYU's Center for the Humanities. So thank you so much, Uli, for joining us today. Uh, sure, it's really a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me on the show. Of course. So I'd love to talk about the Fictions of America anthology you had edited, which is known for presenting quote unquote first literary works that established um, diverse critical and creative voices across race, ethnicity, and gender. So could you share with us the impetus of this project and what the curation process looked like? Sure, and just to be sure we are recording, right? Because I didn't click anything. Yeah, okay. Um, so Fictions of America, the book of first, I co-edited with a doctoral student of mine, Smaran Dayal. And it comes out of teaching really, out of teaching literature to students at NYU who are generally not majors in literature departments, but STEM students or data science, computer science, et cetera. And I teach just a general, big required course on literature. And I was looking for different texts to include. And I came across a couple of things basically through Facebook discussions with other teachers. And someone suggested the writer Sui Sin Far, um, who published short stories in the 1890s and early 1900s. And she is considered the first Asian American to publish short stories in America. So I taught one of her stories, they're very beautiful and very moving, powerful stories in the land of the free about this Chinese couple arriving at San Francisco port. The mother arrives with her little baby son and he's seized by customs officials and taken from the family and put in an orphanage somewhere else. And then they have to try to get the American government to release their son to them. It's a really powerful story. And it worked incredibly well in my class and students were really taken with it, which is always kind of nice when the story works. And then one of my students said that she had never, never been assigned a text written by anyone like herself. And she'd gone to a really great high school in LA. Uh, in her words, she grew up in a Korean bubble, a Korean American, and she'd never at NYU in four years been assigned a text by an Asian writer or Asian American writer. And I said, no, you probably know, uh, Maxine Hong Kingston, Woman Warrior, or Amy Tan, a Joy Law Club. And she said, nope, nope, have never been assigned anything. And since the class was really electrified by this conversation around this text, I thought, why don't I know these texts? And why aren't they really widely available? And of course they are available in many anthologies. There are many kind of multicultural anthologies of American literature, et cetera. They can all be found. But I honestly thought I could type in first stories written by, and then say African-Americans, Native Americans, Asian-Americans, LGBT writers, Mexican-Americans at the time of today Latinx. And it would just spit out the answers and it didn't. It was really, really complicated. And then because it was a pandemic and I had a lot of time, I kind of went into this researching and it was amazing to discover how many texts there are that I'd never heard of, which was the problem of my education in a certain way, but that I really couldn't find in sort of easy, easily accessible anthologies. A lot of them are in specialized anthologies. The very important uh, Norton anthology of African-American literature includes a lot of them, but some of them are really just tucked away in scholarly journals or sort of in a specialized discussion. And they remain also stuck in women's literature or Latinx literature or Asian American literature, and they're not as much found in this is the American canon. So I wanted to put this book together really as a book for people to discover how deep and how far back the diversity of voices reaches in this country. And it doesn't start in, you know, 1970s with Maxine Hong Kingston or something, you know, Suisse and Farr is considered the grandmother, sort of the great auntie of Asian American literature. But her stories weren't republished until the late 1970s and early 1980s. And then I, it was really gratifying because I, Smart and I got in touch with a lot of scholars and people were so generous and so gracious to help us out. So Robert Dale Parker, who researched 
19th century publications and discovered an enormous amount of Native American poetry that had been published but forgotten uh, by most people, not by all people, but by most people. So he anthologized that. Um, so there were other people who helped us really to get into this and find out where these texts were. They had done this enormous amount of archival work. So it's really, it was really one of the most intellectually exciting projects I've done. And I feel, because we're just the editors, we didn't write this book, we just wanted to put it together with as much information that's digestible. There's a page and a half bio entry on each writer and then a list of, a list of suggested readings that teachers could use it as well. That you could sort of buy this book, we published it, we are very determined to publish it at a $20 price point. <laughs> we didn't want to publish it with all due respect to Oxford University or Norton for $89 <laughs> because we wanted students and teachers to get their hands on it. So the ebook is $10. So we thought a high school teacher somewhere can access this whole volume uh, with all the research information in it and start teaching from it. Right. And so could you tell us a little bit more about, you know, how do these published works even get lost in the first place? How are these voice, how do the voices become unheard or forgotten? It's really interesting question because we use this criteria, which is a bit odd and um, specific to say the first published work. So we said it had to be published, not in a private journal really, but somehow accessible to a greater readership or audience, which of course was incredibly difficult for many people who were kept out of education, kept out of publishing, didn't have access to the venues that mainstream American culture had at the time. Although there's a very vibrant culture of magazines, literary publications that are not just books that we know. As we know famously, Walt Whitman self-published his first book. Emily Dickinson published about eight poems in her lifetime, one in the school paper and the other 1,790. She never published at all. So, Publication is only for us a way to say these voices spoke into the American public from places where they were really not recognized in the way many other people were recognized. Some of these people were uh, writing under laws um, which prohibited them from actually learning how to read or write. They were laws to keep, especially African-Americans, deliberately uneducated and out of the world of writing and reading. Um, and we wanted to find texts. So your question, where were they? Some of them, Jupiter Hammond, who is probably one of the first African-Americans to publish poetry in this country, even before Phyllis Wheatley, who publishes the first book of poetry. But Jupiter Hammond wrote um, a couple of poems and some of them were only found in 2016 by researchers uh, in Texas because they went to the Yale Library, the Beinecke Library, and the family that had enslaved Jupiter Hammond for his entire lifetime, for 95 years, and he was never freed. He wrote poems. He was born in 1711 and died in 1806. In the papers of the family, of one of the sons of the family, they found one of his poems. So they were essentially lost in some other property because he was also at that moment considered property. There were other things. Um, there's a short story published in 1928 called Teresa, a Haitian tale about the Haitian revolution, which takes a dramatic turn. There are two teenage girls and her mother, they are running away. The French troops are trying to find them. And Teresa, this young adolescent, kind of disobeys her mother and changes the fate of the outcome of the revolution by giving Toussaint Louverture some information. It's an amazing story about a black teenager basically who changes world history. It's a really wonderfully exciting story. Um, and that was published anonymously with the pseudonym S in an African-American newspaper in 1828. So a scholar in the 1970s researched all these newspapers and discovered the story. And in the 1970s, it was incredibly difficult. They were just physical holdings or microfiche or microfilm. Now they're digitized to a point. So some of them were published in a paper or a journal. Uh, some of them were published in a very small book that then went out of print and was never restored. And there may be a few copies in libraries. So they get lost because people didn't do the work for a long time to preserve them and place them in anthologies. And I'm really interested in this project in all these projects of how do you actually keep things around and keep memory alive? Because 
I really love teaching. So I have 20 year old students in front of me. And my students were really interested in this fact that people put together anthologies, that they had decisions made all the time. They, of course, knew that in a way, but they never really thought about it. They said, well, yeah, there's a book of stories or poems, and they're just the stories that people recognize. And I had all these conversations with them. I said, well, someone like me sat down and made a decision to include this poem and exclude that story. And they really got into these conversations in an interesting way, although they're not literary scholars. They just said, uh, and, I, and I wanted them to understand how what we consider knowledge and the tradition is of course constructed. It's kind of a given, but when it becomes really apparent when you see what's been left out and then suddenly discover all these things are really amazing and could be included, then it becomes a, I think a more exciting question rather than this kind of passive question knowledge is a construction, there's power involved. That seems to me very Foucauldian and abstract. <laughs> my, my students, I think they came to it from a different place. Right, and so would you say this anthology is interested in reestablishing the American canon or just doing something entirely different? I think, I think it is really interesting in reestablishing and in adding something. I'm not really so interested in throwing out one set of books or texts for another one. Um, also seems almost a little bit sad that we in literature are fighting turf wars against each other when the culture at large is not exactly sort of promoting poetry everywhere. <laughs> so, so I think it just adds um, a kind of variety and depth of text that you can now read next to the things you already know. So the authors we know are Edgar Allan Poe, Hawthorne, Melville, Dickinson, Whitman, and maybe Henry James or something like that. And that's kind of, or maybe James Fenimore Cooper in the beginning of that, but those are the texts. And Edgar Allan Poe even lives in high schools, but disappears in colleges a bit. He's it was also, they have their sort of place in the canon. And then I thought this, this anthology just adds many more voices next to it. So you get a much better understanding of, oh, Whitman is writing in the 1850s, imagining America and the relation we have to this landscape here. And what does it mean to inhabit an indigenous country that was populated before and make it your own and claim it as your own? And then you can look at John Rowland Ridge, um, whose uh, Indian name is Chisquatalan, who is a American author who writes at the same time as Whitman poems in 1847, 1848, 1860s. One of them called as an Indian grave, which is an amazing kind of words worthy and meditation of walking somewhere and coming across a mound in the ground where an Indian was probably murdered by the white settlers and buried. And he says, I will not let them step on your grave once more but I will give you a resting place in this poem. It's a very beautiful poem, but it shifts your understanding of the, of the cultural context of Whitman, let's say. Right, definitely. And so considering you know, this conversation around who's heard and why, or who isn't heard and why, uh, your podcast, Think About It, features conversations centered around free speech, especially in academic and university settings. So who do you find benefits most from free speech and how do these dynamics sort of reflect politics within, you know, the university as an institution? It's actually um, funny to me, this book, this work on this anthology of literature and poems is really my way of thinking these authors are, should be counted among the free speech heroes in America. I'm not sure if they're the only ones, but I would go to them first because they wrote under conditions when no court granted them any right to anything really pretty much. No Congress used any First Amendment rights to let them speak where they had to create their own spaces to be heard and to speak. So I, have always been interested in free speech coming from the humanities as a place where we want to hear more voices, greater variety of perspectives, different voices, divergent voices, disagreement, et cetera. And my podcast was started, I started it, I think, two and a half years ago because I was a bit um, disappointed with the academic debate about free speech on campus. It was largely around 
firebrand speakers like provocateurs or you know big people who have a big following and then a lot of money from conservative foundations to go to universities and disrupt things and they if, if they went to a university and there was no protest it wasn't a successful speech so i thought this is not how i think of speech coming from the humanities I, my premise is or my starting point is as everybody in the humanities has as a starting point we start with plurality and difference we don't start with there's a dominant opinion and now we got to start to fight really hard to get dissent into the system. We start from this huge range of um, life and life experience. So my understanding of free speech was how does the university allow more speech to happen, more voices that hadn't been heard before, more interesting things. And since I've always been interested in this construction and creation of the canon of why people bother to write about themselves and their lives or about anything and wanted to add that voice to a general discussion. So I thought the free speech debate kind of starts in a different place. It starts with this place, we absolutely must defend the worst possible speech at all costs. And you know, I'm friends with people like Nadine Strawson and you know people who have a really different take on this and they say, no, it's America has really done incredibly well because it protects hate speech above all. This is literally a quote from some of the books I've been dealing with. And I thought actually America has done great because it's allowed for creative voices to imagine who we are and not just destructive voices to attack the status quo. So the kind of positive contributions of speech seemed as important to me as the kind of negative examples of this is the speech we must tolerate because otherwise slippery slope, we are gonna be shut down. And then I just thought the podcast is a great space to allow people outside of the academy to understand what we're even doing. Because it's for non-academics, it's really strange what we do. <laughs> and, and I don't think everybody needs to be doing what we're doing. And a lot of this, I mean, I, I spend, I don't know how much time trying to figure out whether Samson Oakham, who is a Native American author who wrote hymns for prayer books and hymn books, which are still used today in church. And he was a fundraiser for what is then going to become Dartmouth College. And he was a Native American young man educated at Dartmouth, ultimately betrayed by the founder of Dartmouth College, who basically said, well, thanks for raising all this money because I can show you off as this amazing achievement of a Native American who speaks all these languages and can write script, can write um, hymns, but I'm not going to con continue to educate Native Americans at Dartmouth. So in a way he was enlisted in a program to start something, but I spent so much time trying to figure out whether these hymns count, which one counts, when was it published, and I relied on so many different people. So not everybody needs to be doing this work. It's great work, but it takes... But the podcast is a way to explain these things to people without simplifying them unnecessarily. So I love these conversations. And to be honest with you, Julia, like the most fun thing for me in the podcast is I learned so much. I have to, <laughs> I try to read as much as I can before in preparation. And for me, it was like being back in school and learning things I hadn't studied before. Right. And so just returning to your point that in the humanities, most of us share a starting point of plurality. And so considering that, I find it odd that even today, there's sort of a skewed curriculum in the way that say your Asian student had said that she had come to an elite university and it's still not been working with authors that represent her and her own identity. And I think seeing that representation of yourself is super important, both in whether it's in a university setting or just, you know, in mainstream culture. And so I don't know, I guess I'm just wondering, like, how are we still working in such like a rigid curriculum at this point? especially at universities where these conversations are happening, like where, where, what is getting lost in translation from the conversation of what we're teaching in classrooms? Like, I think this conversation has been around for a long time and it's really robust. And as you're saying, there are many people who've done far more work than I ever have on diversifying the curriculum, if you want to use that word, or decolonizing it. There's a huge movement to basically decolonize the whole university because its very structure is oppressive and for some people. So 
I tend to work more in the system. So I like universities, actually. I think they give people amazing spaces to be creative rather than sort of indict the whole system itself. But I think what we're seeing in our country, these debates over what is the true past of America, the 1619 project by the New York Times that centers the enslavement of Africans as an essential part of American history and goes so far as to suggest that slavery was so integral that the American Revolution takes it as a central plank because the, Brit the British want to abolish slavery. That has been contested. There's been huge debates. I think these debates are really productive and really good that people really talk about this. The Confederate monuments that, you know, which ultimately resulted in, you know, the tragic events in Charlottesville in 2017 when Heather Hale was murdered by right-wing extremists, I would call them extremists, who were defending Thomas Jefferson. And I interviewed um, John Mason at U University of Virginia, and he said, oh, Uli, no, 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 you call them extremists. They're not wrong. They own part of Jefferson's legacy. That the black students also own part of Jefferson and his legacy, that he has the best of America that he gives us, this vision of a democratic country, and the worst of America, as someone who enslaved Sally Hemings and basically is a, right, is a white supremacist in the language of today, not of back then. And I really learned something and I said, oh, wait, they're not, he said, they're not totally wrong. It's not a matter of wrong or right, but this contest of who we are as a country coincides with what you're asking, what's happening in universities. And I really learned from John Mason because he said, they're defending something they very much believe is true. And part of it is true. And he said, they are lunatics, they're crazy. He said, of course, the violence and all that. But he said, they're not crazy. He said, that is also Jefferson. So this ambivalence in the, let's say, this, these tensions in the American story, I think, probably can't be settled completely by saying, let's just swap out a bunch of authors and bring in new ones. It's more for our students to see, wow, we have already so many different voices back then. That's why Annette Gordon-Reed's book, you know, on Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings is so important that Sally Hemings is now commemorated her presence at Monticello when you go to UVA, when you go to Charlottesville and you visit Jefferson's home, you now do a tour and you see not just a sign that says here were the slave quarters, but they say, this is probably where Sally Hemings slept. This is the room she was in. This is her family. These are the names. These are her descendants. This is the story. So the way we tell our history can become more complex. And I think this, this in the university, sometimes the conversation goes in one direction and goes quite far in one direction, which is fine. In public life, it doesn't go quite as far. So when there are demands to say, we need to throw out this curriculum, replace all of it, that has a tactical function. I think it's very important. And I think these, these efforts are really, really important, but I don't think they are ultimately, they can't be translated into the general public conversation. They, they are informing that. And I think they've, like another example, women's history, social history, gender studies have basically, I think, made it more or less unusual to have, well, I don't know, I'm gonna qualify that, to have a textbook with all male authors. I mean, I teach global studies and there's a very well-known textbook out there on global justice that has 24 essays and two of them are written by women. Um, probably Saskia Sassen and Martha Nussbaum. And they are usually about women and gender. And the other ones are about universal topics, justice, trade, all these things. And women have a specialized concern with women. They don't speak for them. So we're still in this mode today, which we're thinking everything that's not white male and sort of Western is different. I wanted to I'm trying to think, how do you actually undo this kind of opposition between the normative, 
the default versus the difference or the otherness. And that's why this book to me is an American book of American fiction that start right there. So if you don't know anything about America, you could read this book, you'll get a sense of America versus saying, oh, let's read everything from Washington to Emerson to Hawthorne and then let's end up with Henry James. And then you know the history of America in the 19th century. But you know one history, but not, but I think this is how the university can inform public discussion the university sometimes can't quite as easily convey to the public what we're even doing. So my podcast was a way to say, I can open this conversation up. And the other reason I did the podcast is because when I teach, and I'm sure you have the same experience, I don't, maybe you don't have the same experience. I, I literally can teach something I've taught 20 times. I don't know, Kafka's Metamorphosis or Emerson's Self-Reliance or... Uh, some Dickinson poem. Um, and then before class, I think, oh my God, what am I going to say? I have no idea. I just reread it. I have no way to think about it. And I used to call a friend of mine, Al, and I would call him and say, what am I going to say? And he said, Uli, you've written books about this. You've taught this so many times. I'm sure you know. And the podcast for me was a way for teachers to, you can on your way to class, listen to 20 minutes of me speaking to Richard Bernstein on Hannah Arendt or uh, I don't know, Deborah Plant about Zora Neale Hurston. And those 20 minutes, I'm going to give you enough of an idea to start your class. It seems as though you're reframing this contextualization of history, not to be one-sided and not to also sort of align yourself with highlighting otherness or other voices, like not even putting these authors into that box to begin with. It's cutting straight to the chase. Like these represent Americanists. Like these authors are what America constitutes. And so both in tandem with this anthology and your podcast, how do you sort of negotiate if you do at all, if you feel as though you do, like institutional goals and expectations versus what you're doing? Because like we've, we're talking about, there's still sort of a disparity between the two. Right. I'm wondering, is that a concern? Or it seems as though the way you're framing this, it's not necessarily because it's more about a positive contribution and not necessarily jumping in the conversation and saying, you know, we have to stop focusing on everything we've been teaching and just completely, you know, take an alternate route to these different voices, but instead reading them together and instead understanding the history more comprehensively. That's correct. But let me get to sort of the point you're raising. Um, so, I try to frame this in a way I'm making a contribution, but I'm also totally aware of the culture wars, which have been raging for a long time, and that a lot of people will take issue with even framing the book of fictions of America in this way and identifying every author by a social marker, saying this is the first African-American, Native American, Asian American, Arab American, Mexican American. These categories are totally anachronistic meaning they don't apply to the 1850s. I mean, the people, Maria Amparo Ruiz de Burton was a Mexican-American aristocrat who lived ultimately in California. Then she lived in Washington. She went to the inauguration of President Lincoln. She was a fancy, wealthy person and would have not even understood what we mean by Latinx or Chicana literature, Latino. None of these terms made any sense to her. So I'm using categories that are pretty contested. So they're not all just, oh, I'm adding something here. The, 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 I, I included the first, we concluded the first lesbian themed story in America by Rose Terry Cook, who was an incredibly popular short story writer who I'd never heard of before, but we did a lot of readings and a lot of amazing anthologies. And then we wrote to a bunch of scholars and they said, yeah, Uli, you can put that in, but we would not put it in. And we said, I said, well, what would be the first story? They said, well, we're not going to tell you. There's no such thing. We can't really identify that because is it that she have to be a lesbian if she was not? Is this so, so these categories are very contested. And you're raising a point when I do this work. I want to come in this spirit because I'm interested in it because it comes out of teaching to add something, to do something that contributes. But the podcast also came out of an experience. I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times in 2017 called, where I wanted to center the conversation around speech on students 
and equality and the rights of students to participate in their education on equal terms. And that op-ed in the New York Times was met with enormous amounts of hostility. So Rush Limbaugh and Coulter Bill O'Reilly didn't like it. When they didn't like it, I had tens of thousands of people on Twitter who didn't like it. And then I had thousands of comments and the New York Times shut down the comment section uh, because, because the options they gave me, the New York Times said, we can't, we can't, we don't have enough sort of people here to monitor this comment section because they put your children's school information in here. And the options were, this is what I thought was kind of funny and kind of sad. So I was talking about free speech. And these people said, your options are be demoted, deported, or dead. And I thought, so, so much for the free speech conversation. When you say something that isn't the orthodoxy of America, you first of all, shown the door right away, because I'm a naturalized citizen, but suddenly I, was, I did not belong. You don't know what's going on in this country. How dare you? And, and I thought, wait, we're in the university, and all I'm hearing is we want to tolerate and accept all viewpoints. And I raised a viewpoint that is actually not my own invention. I mean, there's an entire tradition of Richard Delgado, Mary Matsuda, Catherine McKinnon, Lawrence Summers. There are lots of legal scholars who have thought this way. Robert Post, I'm not alone. I didn't invent this whole idea to think of equality as a category that informs our debates on speech. But people were so angry and so triggered, to use that word, that I was kind of, I was a little bit blindsided. I didn't expect this. I kind of thought, well, this has been said before and I know there's going to be animosity, but I thought this, is, this touches on something very fundamental. This touches on people defending an abstract belief to justify all sorts of things, but not to justify other things. So we know this, so they felt, okay, so free speech, absolutism, defense, right-wing hate speech, like it defends hate speech above all. It's actually the category that every free speech discussion ultimately centers on. And a lot of self-declared absolutists say it must especially protect hate speech because that's political speech. But then all sorts of other things, it seems, are not really tolerated. So as we know, LGBT books are the most banned books in public libraries in America. They're not racist books or something like that. It's not Dr. Seuss. It's LGBT theme book. So I kind of thought this is where the university usually would do well to parse and tease apart these kinds of tensions and say they're tensions. They're probably not totally resolvable, but I wasn't so happy that there wasn't a tolerance to say, okay, here's a tension in the system. There's something we need to work out. Can we reconcile this? It's not a matter of, I mean, lawyers don't use these terms in the same way, it's not a matter of balancing free speech with equality. Balancing is a legal term that's specific in some other contexts. But I thought, wait, shouldn't there be more of a robust understanding of these things rather than some senior scholar yelling at the students and saying, no, your First Amendment. And you're abandoning the First Amendment by demanding that there should not be the N-word used in your dorm room door. These are really examples. Or uh, so sorry that some guy comes here and advocates you know, genocide, literally. And, but we have to have that on our campus because otherwise we would compromise the university. And so I thought this is really not doing a service to the students to not give them the space to say, okay, I'm confused. This seems complicated. And the, if the answer is, well, you don't understand the first amendment and how good it's been for America, which is a quote from Floyd Abrams book, the soul of the first amendment. He said, it served us well to protect, especially um, uh, political speech that is, that is hate speech unlike other countries who've had a history of racist violence and genocide. And he meant specifically South Africa and Germany. And I thought, but we've had a history of that too. It's different. It's not the same history. It cannot be merged into an analogy, but we've had a history and racism has a lot to do with that history. So for him to say, we have been so well served to protect racism. My question was, who has been served well? Have 
minorities and women been really served so well that for a long time, harassment was legal in this country until about 35 years ago. It was all just speech and a joke and you couldn't take a joke and you were a little bit too sensitive and girls take our skin. So, so I wanted to get the podcast as the space to have these conversations. And I, it's been really amazing because people are very willing to engage in these conversations and, and the podcast at the same time, I did not invite um, right-wing firebrands who make money off their notoriety. I, I didn't want to invite some of them. I thought, what is, what is the point for me to give another platform to somebody who already commands so much of media attention? And the media gives ultimately a lot more attention, I think, to the likes of Ben Shapiro uh, or Milo Yiannopoulos who really don't have that much interesting to add. I mean, it's not that interesting what they have to say, I feel, but they're getting enormous amounts of funding and exposure. So I thought the podcast could counter that a bit by giving exposure and I don't have the funding, but at least exposure to other people. Right. And to be honest with you, I'm still stuck on this New York Times piece that you had. <laughs> and first of all, I'm sorry that panned out the way that it did, but that's fine. What? you know, is really um, striking to me at this point is that not only are you a white man at an elite university who holds multiple positions, an extremely accredited person, <laughs> but because you are an immigrant, that, that the rest doesn't matter anymore. Well, actually it mattered. It actually, what you're saying mattered a lot. I think people were enraged that I have a certain position at a very visible university. They thought you should not have this view because the university should have one party line. And I think it's kind of, I did it also early in the Trump administration because I thought the universities are failing to explain in a coherent, concise yet nuanced way what free speech is for them. I think they really defaulted to a kind of legalistic understanding and I'm not alone. There are many, many legal scholars who say the first amendment is a guide, but it, is, it should not be the solution to the problems on campus. It will not answer them just for many, many reasons. So the legal lens is one to use, but it was the only one used at that time. Said, ah, oh, throwing up our hands, we have some person coming, we can't say no because First Amendment. That's just not true. It's simply not true. I mean, first of all, in private universities, it's really not true at all. And why should universities default to a position that we now know has been incredibly costly and not good for public universities? The chancellor of the University of California had to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for security measures. And it's not only because of some Antifa activism, but she said, this is not really worth it for the campus, but I have to do it. My hands are tied. If your hands are not tied as a university president, then what do you do? You say, oh, my hands are tied too. That seems kind of a silly way to operate. So, oh, we're going to be in as bad a position as the public universities because that's the only position possible. What if all university presidents had gotten together, which is very hard to do, and said, we actually really object to the university being manipulated into these showdowns between non-academic positions, which have nothing to do with the pursuit of knowledge or truth or learning, but are just media spectacles, and the media's way of jumping on that spectacle and politicians moving in. So you had Trump actually moving in and saying, absolutely, the university is out of control. They're shutting down right-wing speech, and we have a lot of groups. So I thought people were very invested in not letting the university say, we actually need to be a little bit on the look out for this. We need to be careful not to become used by other forces in society that want to advance something else that actually goes against our values. This is for me the biggest challenge. Everybody knows when you start college and freshman orientation week, first year orientation week, you have all sorts of workshops and everything. And the values of the university are pretty clear. <laughs> Equality, their friend is diversity and equity and inclusion. That's a big value. Free speech is a value. But they don't say, hi, welcome to the university. Too bad you're going to be subjected to hate speech because that's our greatest principle. And we ended up there a little bit. So I thought I was in a certain way not prepared, but it was good that the Times piece generated this discussion. Um, 
it taught me something else that liberals in general were not very good with social media four years ago. Conservatives were super good and super organized. And uh, I had a lot of students and friends who said, oh, I love your piece. And I said, that's really great that you put a comment in the Times. And they say, oh, we don't do that. And I said, did you put a comment on Amazon? Oh, we don't do that. I mean, Ann Coulter's book has thousands and thousands of Amazon reviews. Um, that's not true for many brilliant and important academics because we don't do that. So I kind of thought we actually, we better start getting used to it. This is where the world happens <laughs> and universities shouldn't st stay, sit out of this really vibrant conversation because by sitting out, they're going to be used. For me, this was the biggest thought that universities who don't say anything here and just say, well, we can't say anything, our hands are tied. They are saying something to their students. I've always been really interested that institutions speak all the time. And when it is an institution, you don't speak, you're saying something. So the same thing on the syllabus. If I don't have anybody on there who's not a white man, I'm saying something. Mm -hmm. You're communicating values and the students pick that up. They know that. Right. And just thinking in terms of this conversation, Binghamton University as an institution has a very long history of not addressing, say, racist, you know, incidents that happen on campus. And when they do, it's, of course, a very, um, how do I put it, like, cutesy way of addressing something and sort of glossing over it, never providing details of what actually happened, just being like, so sorry to whoever has been affected, see you in class tomorrow type of thing. And... So especially even right now, we're seeing a lot of students and faculty along with community members sort of galvanizing and thinking about, you know, how do we change this or how do we at least negotiate this within the university? Because as you're mentioning, what the university says and what it doesn't holds a lot of weight and it's either allowing something to happen and in most cases, it's never condemning what shouldn't be happening in the first place. And so... I guess what I'm at this point still a little unclear on is how are we negotiating hate speech under free speech at this point and not so that we don't have to, um, well, we always will face the opposition of your silencing right-wing voices when it's like, I'm not sure that it's possible to silence colonizers. Like that's not really how it works. So yeah. Yeah, it's a really good question. It's sort of, I mean, we'll never get rid of bigotry and hatred. That's just not going to happen no matter what you do. And you wouldn't want to live in a society of total speech control at all. Not at all. But your question is, does the university do enough? Some, let's just say these things will happen. They will happen. They are upsetting. I think for the university to speak with one voice is very difficult because there isn't one voice. It's such a big place, so complicated and many contradictions. As I said much earlier, there's such a plurality of viewpoints. Some people probably maybe even agree with some of this, who knows? Or they just say, well, for First Amendment reasons, free speech reasons, I don't agree, but it has to happen. Um, I think a hard thing for people to realize is universities are communities. We are a kind of voluntary community of people opt in, they apply, they work there. This is sort of, it, there's a kind of sense of belonging. And I think when the university experiences such an incident, they have to have done enough work to make people realize this affects all of us. So several weeks ago, this another mass shooting happened in Georgia and uh, several women were murdered. I think six of them were Asian or Asian American. So our university issued some statements in the shows, I think, Instagram, which means faculty didn't see it. And they said something, there were several statements and one of them was really, and I talked about it with my students and my students said this was, this one, they felt, okay, this was okay. And then the other one said, we stand with the Asian community. And we talked about this in my class for a long time and I ended up trying to understand, I said, what does it mean to stand with the Asian community? Because 
I'm a literary scholar. So the, to me, that already sounds like there's an Asian community over there and we stand with them. But in our class, is a small class of 18 students, we sort of were all affected by this because, and this is what teaching does, which I've always been teaching, even when I was in senior administration, I never stopped teaching because you learn so much. I had four women say that independently and separately, they were all harassed or threatened in New York City over the course of last week. And they said, what does NYU do about that? That it's become relatively unsafe because the city is so empty, et cetera, et cetera. And two of them were targeted, they think, probably, possibly, because of who they are. The other ones, they were just targeted because they were women. So they were also targeted. And they said there was guys around. They were with friends. A guy walked up to them, really. So we I said, I really, are you OK? This is terrible. And they talked about what could NYU do. And then we talked about it. And I said, you know, the first step to maybe doing something is that we were all in this room and we listened to you. And then I asked the men in this class, there are six men, I said, what did you think? And they said, well, we were aware of this, but we'd never really heard it from so many people in our room. And they know them really well because I do these, a lot of these team assignments. So I thought the university has to find ways to say, this is not just targeting some of you, this is targeting us as a university. So it's really difficult, but when I say there was a racist incident, so we want to say the students from this group, we are with you, you know, please come, you can get support or counseling. It leaves the other people out. And this is a really difficult thing. I think this is where America is in a way also always to say, okay, so you are targeted as a person belonging to this group. It, in a weird way, doesn't do the job of saying this affects all of us. If some of us are targeted in this way, we're all affected by it. And partly, I think the, you know, that's why I always wanted to go back to the role of what teaching is. If as a teacher, I realize a couple of my students are just not really focusing in the same way or they find it much harder, then it's my job as a teacher to figure out how to make that better. It is not my job as a teacher to say, oh, it's tough for you today. So sorry, we're going to move on. But to actually find a way to say this is actually bad for all of us. Because the university has a goal, which is research, teaching, advancement of knowledge, et cetera. The goal is not just to have a lot of speech. People get really confused about this. And there's this um, text called the Chicago University of Chicago Principles, which 200 universities have signed on. And it's very well written and very fancy and says free speech is so important. And it never mentions the words truth or knowledge or teaching in two and a half pages, but it says freedom 14 times. And it's freedom of speech as the, the highest value of the university. For me, that's like saying the highest purpose of a democracy is to have many, many, many elections in a row. Uh, no, the elections are a means to an end the expression of the people. Free speech is a means to an end in the university. It's not the end. The end is advancement of knowledge, education, etc. So if they flip that around, so to go back to you, when something happens on campus, to not instantly say this is terrible, but regrettably, we have to tolerate it. You can go pretty far, even with your lawyers to say, this is regrettable. We really condemn this and we actually think this affects all of us. And when one of us is affected, that is a really hard thing to create a sense of, I, I just called it belonging. It's not even solidarity. But you know what I'm like, I'm a white man. So in some ways, when I see these statements, mentally, I can check out of almost all of them. I can say, oh, yeah, oh, those people. But that puts me in also like as a human being in a really shitty position, I think, <laughs> right? You're on, the, you're on the side you don't want to be on, so to say someone is targeted for who they are and you just, yeah, well, too bad for them. I stand with them. So that's not enough, I think. Right. And this even just calls to mind right now, faculty members, students and community members are working through this issue recently where there was sort of... Um, there had been a Zoom bombing incident, and as well as within a discussion section, a student did not realize his microphone was off as he was talking about his TA. 
obviously in an extremely racialized offensive sense. And there had been an email from staff member at the university at, you know, administrative level. And she had said like, to the effect of, it's almost verbatim, I don't know exactly what it was, but you know, people as, have just as much of a right to be racist as they do to not be. Well, that's, that's what I'm saying. That's maybe the language of having a right is maybe not quite the right framing because you may have a right, but as we know in any community, like every student has learned this in civics, we have some responsibilities too. So in some ways to say you have a right means we cannot punish you. But to say something else, in it, or in addition to say, <clears throat> while people have rights to say all sorts of things, like I don't even know if people have rights to be racist or not racist. That's not even a right. It's sort of, you can have a right to have opinions and all this. But then to say, um, how do you balance it out without sort of shaming the student in public and saying this is the worst thing ever? To actually say, though, however, we have values and rearticulate those values that we do not judge people based on group belonging or identity, that we do not um, refuse to work with people based on it, remind them of principles they actually probably really agree with and learned early on, you know, not to use a cliche, but in kindergarten. They said, no. So in some ways, you have, you have to find a way I think the rights language is a really tricky one because it's, it, re, it brings it down to a level as if you're going to be in court. And that's not what universities really hope to do, right? You don't want to sue the student and, and you also don't want to let the, but you also don't want to let the TA actually have this experience and say, oh, uh, too bad, but this person had the right to talk this way. Uh, it, yeah, I don't know. It's tricky, right? <laughs> It is. And even going back to the conversation, you know, when you were talking to your students, specifically the women in your classroom and their harassment they experienced, whether that was just in New York City or on campus, off campus, the university as a whole, of course, is part of this. And so over the summer, Binghamton University students had created a page called Share Your Story. And it was basically a bunch of people sharing their accounts of rape, sexual assault, so on and so forth. And this had happened through many universities. And of course, you know, not even during the main time schools in session. And it had started such a conversation that it had been presented to the administration, even the president of the university. And now there's actually going to be a rape crisis center established on campus, more counseling and more resources. But thinking about this conversation around belonging or solidarity with people that are affected by certain things, in some ways, it's almost ridiculous that you have to ask the university for the support. It's not already there. And I understand you have to ask for things to receive them, but by the same token, if this university and universities just as an institution are meant to represent truth and expanding knowledge and speech and all these things, you know, it takes, uh, most times it takes periods of silence or periods of, well, that's regrettable, that uh, we're sorry to hear that, and moving on before it gets to the point of, okay, we feel at as administration at a university, we're encroachment on an our position and on our power that we have to give in at this point. You know, it always has to get to a breaking point before something happens. Yeah. And the hard thing is the, the conversation will go on because there are people who will say a rape crisis center is bad because it creates a mentality of victimhood in women. You know this argument, so there are self-declared feminists out there who say that's the worst thing that could happen. Um, I think you're right, there has to be this kind of movement. The positive thing you could say that students in the off time of the summer are able to do, share my story, communicate and will be heard. That's the other part of all of this discussion that because of social media, students have a platform and it's not just defined by power and authority and status and you have to be you know, a white man with a title. You can have a voice. And I think that's really fundamental. This, this shades into this whole discussion of accountability, but university leadership has to be aware that something could happen on social media that's not 
the local newspaper or even the student newspaper or CNN on Fox, or Fox News, that something else can happen. So Fox News was very, very loud in talking about the university in a way because they thought everything was wrong. It's too liberal. You know, they're shutting down conservative speech. And now we're realizing, oh, actually, they had a certain version of universities. I don't think they've been on a campus many times. And there's other voices. And I think this is a good thing. And I think you should look at it in a way, say, okay, so wow, a student-driven project could actually get to the attention of these people. Whereas previously, how many women had talked about this, as we know, for how many years? And as we know, are still being dismissed. Still, every time someone speaks to that, oh, really, did this really happen, et cetera. So I think this is a, a great moment in a certain way with, of course, we know on the other side, also there's trolls and there's, you know, the conservatives are not, they're not outside of social media. But I think this is a good thing in a way that people have to become more accountable. It's very fast. It can go awry because something blows up on the internet. It goes, you know, I think also my generation, we have no idea how this really works. We are pretending and trying to, we don't know how it works. <laughs> I really think so. <laughs> right. And I do agree with your point that this moment sort of does represent a good thing, at least if in the, within the realms and parameters of free speech, right? students are able to raise awareness around something where they have gone to the administration previously years and years, I'm sure decades to the same people, whether that's Dean of Students or, you know, right. whoever would normally handle that. Well, it's also, it's your project, your podcast, you know, you don't know, you're starting a podcast. I started my podcast. I mean, like everybody else, I had, you know, 28 listeners the first week or whatever. You know, I've reached tens and tens of thousands of people. I have no corporate sponsor. I do it and I, I learned one really great thing. So I would try to do it and I had to get a studio and a microphone and all the setup and everything. And then my, my daughter, I was talking to her and I said, it's so difficult. And then people said, you can't do it. You can't do it with your phone and you can't do it without this. And you can't do it with a studio before Zoom, of course, when everything had to be super professional because they're all professionals. And then she said, I wonder if they want you to succeed. And I said, what? And, she, and so when people started telling me, no, you cannot record on your phone and you cannot record on Zoom and you must have a studio and two engineers and sound mastery and all this, I'd say, oh, do you want me to succeed? And in some ways, this is a good moment for students. They can actually succeed in a space where beforehand you had to get published by the local newspaper, by the student newspaper. It's like, good for them. So I think this is where you, this is also, I think why, the right was able to exploit this moment pretty well in universities and the universities and the university ministry didn't quite know what to do because they were like we don't even know what to do there's 10,000 people on twitter screaming do this and i thought that doesn't matter 10,000 people on twitter for two hours is not really shouldn't change the direction of your institution <laughs> right <laughs> but so i think actually i try to think of that as a good thing um and the podcast what you're doing I think it's a really important thing to do to jump on this medium, be really creative, open it up and have conversations that you just cannot have writing a scholarly paper. It's just not the same, same way of even engaging, right? Right, and I think, you know, whether that's for liberals in general or just really anybody, if leveraging these platforms means everything at this point in terms of putting your ideas out there and making it in a sense what we would consider open access, right, in the humanities. And so, and not to, not as to gatekeep this information because what's the point of having great conversations that right. can really be influential if they're only on JSTOR? Right, that's yeah. what I always felt because it's so expensive to participate in universities and many people will never have the time or money to do it. And right. Well, thank you. We're so happy to have you on here for this episode. This was an awesome conversation. I really did enjoy it. And I feel as though I'm learning a lot, not just like the technicalities of sort of running a podcast, right. especially over Zoom. It's, you know, a little muddy right. there. But um, yeah, this has just been super enlightening for me as well. And having these conversations is always great. So just thank you again so much. Oh, thanks for having me so much and good luck. And I, uh, I do want to say to our listeners, so the podcast I do is Think About It. And my, one of my student workers, he will be furious if I don't mention that. You can find it on YouTube, Ulrich Bear's my channel. 
it makes a huge difference if you subscribe or like for the following reason that I don't make money off this, but other people can find it more easily. And I'm on Instagram as uh, <coughs> uli.nyc. I'm on Twitter, uli.bear. So just follow me. And I'm doing this <laughs> for the simple reason that this, is, this allows many other people to get access to what we're doing here. Of course. And we'll share that in the description of right. the show as well. We'll link to all of that. So right. thank you again so much. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Smaller Narratives for a Larger World. That was a conversation between co-host Jillian Kenna and guest Ulrich Bayer. To learn more and to access our other episodes, please visit org.binghamton.edu or smallernarratives.com.